You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house as we plow through this week on Wednesday, April 10th. Your prophet of woe and lamentation is back in the house to give you your political scotch straight up, 100 proof. No sugar, no additives. Just the unadulterated truth. Now, in order to do that, we always have to give you bad news because, well, the swamp is the swamp, and it's still controlled by the swamp, and we got to change that until we change it. Well, there's going to be swampy news. But I do want to brighten up your spirits a little bit before we get to the bad news. The president is in Houston today touting his new plans to expedite construction of pipelines and permitting of oil and and natural gas drilling. That's an issue he's consistently really been good on. And unfortunately, you know, Republicans in in the Senate are trying to block him left and right, joining Democrats on all this stuff, um, which is which is just uh, just ridiculous. So kind of good and bad news mixed in there. But um. It really is truly amazing. America's very own Hanukkah oil miracle. How much oil we've been able to produce, how much more we recover, how much more God blesses us with just such an abundance of resources. It truly is amazing. Maybe we'll get to this at the end of the show or tomorrow. Um, what's going on with the president, what he wants to do, why it's important, how far we've come the last couple of years, particularly even the last year. Since Trump took office, production of oil has spiked 36%. We are now producing 12.2 million barrels of oil per day, more than Saudi Arabia or anyone. We are crushing it, crushing the market. Um, This is truly America's miracle. But of course, commensurate with good news, guess what? The courts are coming in and shutting it down. So uh, that is something I hope to cover more in the coming days. But look, what's, what's good? You know, what good is the oil if we don't have a country left? The invasion continues at our border. We continue to have an aimless party with nobody, not a single senator. Have you heard a single senator flood the zone on this issue? Do what I did yesterday. Put out a plan to deter, defend, and demagnetize our border. Ten ideas I put out yesterday. Why is no senator doing that? President obviously is the only one speaking to it, but you know he kind of conflicts himself as all over the place, depending on who he listens to. There's a lot of news out this week that he's he is more and more turning to Stephen Miller. I hope that is true. I don't have personal information vouching for that, but um, I hope that is true. And I have sent out our articles, including the 10 ideas, 
to people that I hope will get it in front of the president himself. And that's, that's the best we can do for now. But it is truly unbelievable watching the fact that, you know, this should be the biggest news story of the day, what's going on at our border, and yet it's really not. Murphy's Law will have it, struck by lightning again. Attorney General Barr announced that he is going to release some sort of redacted version of the Mueller report in the coming days. So, you know, you could have 5 million illegals come in our border and it just won't matter. Then everyone's going to be distracted with that, including the attorney general himself, who should be really be the leader to give legal advice and make the case to the American people why they have the sound legal and constitutional argument to shut down the border. When I say shutting down the border, again, I don't mean commerce. I mean immigration and asylum requests, bogus asylum requests at our border. So it truly is unbelievable that this is not the biggest story. What's the story? Right after we got off the air yesterday, so CBP finally released the official numbers for March. We have an article out chronicling this. I'm just going to go through a summary of it. 103,492 illegal immigrants were caught at our border. You understand that if this pace keeps up, which so far in April, it looks like it is, might might even be worse, be, be more, that would be a pace of over 1.2 million illegals in one year. Almost all unique individuals, as opposed to past years, they were the same people who we deported within a few hours, they came back again, and almost none of them are being deported. They are permanently remaining in the country. I just did a a quick uh, back-of-the-envelope calculation using the input methodology um, that Stephen Camerata of Center for Immigration Studies uses to calculate the net fiscal cost, the lifetime net fiscal cost of illegal aliens at this demographic. It's roughly 168 to $180 billion for an annual flow of $1.2 million. And again – that was mainly his formula was mainly mainly concocted a few years ago when the orientation was still more weighted towards Mexico than Central America as it is today. And like I told you, the type of people coming, a lot of them are the indigenous population in Central America. They're even more uneducated and will likely cost even more healthcare costs. You could, you could only imagine. In total, not including at the points of entry, because some are coming there too, but between the points of entry, 218,645 family units, well, family unit apprehensions, meaning it includes everyone in the family, has been caught at the border since over the last nine months. Why do I create a benchmark from last July, nine months? Because that is when Judge Dana Sabra ruled <clears throat> that anyone who comes with a child, they must be released with the child. So in other words, during the last nine months, I have a chart of this. You could see it in one, one chart, the entire story. During the last nine months, as many family units have been apprehended 
at our border as in the previous 33 months put together. Think about that. Think about that for a moment. Okay? This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, I'm going to give you a more important statistic, what I feel is really the most important statistic from what uh, what I think is really the most vital benchmark. A 4,647% increase in monthly family unit apprehensions between points of entry since April of 2017. Okay? Why is that an important benchmark? April of 2017, if you remember, was the low point, the nadir of the Trump effect. That's when just the perception that Trump would change Obama's policies and shut things down we actually gain progress. This would have been the best um, accomplishment of this administration where we had a 38-year low in border crossings. Since then, there's been a 4,647% increase in family units. So we've erased all the gains and earned it back with more interest than ever before. And I think the president is starting to realize that, you know, it's very clear to him now that the border wall has not, you know, partial construction, gradually constructing border fencing here and there has nothing to do with this. And he's got to shut down the suicidal policies. But again, we don't have a movement, A, pressuring him and then backing him if he were to do the right thing. They're so distracted. So right now, we're just uh, meandering along on this path. And the president doesn't even talk about this. And this is the speech the president needed to give. Okay? This is unbelievable. I noted that the president should wait for the March numbers to come out, hold a press conference, talk about this data, talk about what it's doing to the border agents, talk about all the bad guys getting in. By the way, it's another article I have out today. I have tons of articles this week I'll link to in show notes on just the rash of sex offenders we catch at our border, which means the ones we don't catch also because we have very few resources to actually patrol. And that's when he should have said, I'm suspending all asylum requests, have his attorney general give the case that I've been giving for so long, put the Supreme Court on notice with an expedited appeal, and give them an ultimatum. But again, it takes courage, it takes a village, he needs people around him, and you need a movement that's going to remain focused. But we don't have one. We don't have a focused movement. So that's what's said about this. I also want to point out to you one other very important point. 
Well, before that, one other thing. <clears throat> According to CBP, there are 104 large groups that have come in this fiscal year so far. Last six months, right? We're halfway through the fiscal year. 104 groups of 100 and more people at once coming in to surrender to border agents. And we call that a, somehow that that's asylum. Somehow that's normal. That is an invasion. It is unbelievable. Mexico is now giving out humanitarian visas so they could tra be transported north. But by definition, if they're getting visas in Mexico, that means they're ineligible for asylum. By definition, asylum is a discretionary, not a mandatory policy. And by definition, there is an overriding statute Actually, several of them in 8 U.S.C. 1182 that allow the president and sometimes mandate that the president, like in cases of health concerns, which you certainly have here with the mumps outbreak and tuberculosis, many other diseases coming in, to shut off asylum requests, push them over the border, don't allow them to enter, bring them back, or at the very least, house them in 10 cities, have a rocket docket, and get them out of here. I've been, as you all know, you are my witness. April of 2017 was the bottom of the flow. It started to go up again in the summer and the fall of 2017. And I said, wait a minute, something doesn't smell right here. They are now seeing this administration as a paper tiger. And then you had the, the series of court rulings. We've had months to deal with this. Remember, the previous flows, the Haitians in the early 90s, Nicaraguans in 1989, the Muriel uh, boat lift from Cuba in 1980, they were shut down within a few months. We have such a lack of leadership because frankly, we don't have an alternative party to the duopoly of the left in this country. That's another thing I wanted to get to if we have time, the Israeli elections and the lessons I've learned from watching them last night. How to create an alternative vision to the political class. But before we get to that, I, I just wanted to close the loop on this point with the invasion and and the bogus asylum, and how it's against statute. And the administration needs to assert this, because if we can't assert this, no law could prevent this. No anything could prevent this. You see, one of the things I noticed, and I have emails into CBP, but of course they, they won't answer me on this, because they, they know they can't. Because it portends something that's very uncomfortable. Well, the money quote or the top line number, the big you know numbers we focus on are the growth in family units. First of all, there was also growth in unaccompanied. But again, it's it's the Central American Central Americans coming as families. Okay? That, that that's certainly the majority. The overwhelming majority. Roughly 70% or so coming over are Central American families or teens. 
But in addition, there has been an increase in single adults. Okay, there were roughly 30,000 single adults caught. And by the way, that means that there are going to be a number of others that we don't catch and we already know. So, so this border flow, when we talk about 103,000 in one month, those are just the ones we caught. It could easily be 150,000 who came over. But anyway, I looked at those numbers and I said, wait a minute. There's been a 30% increase in single adults since February right in March. I said, wait a minute. If the entire magnet is that you come with a child and you're released, well, why would there be a magnet for single adults? Now, I think there's two answers. The, the, the simple answer is what, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because the family units shut down the system and there's no detention space. So even if single adults come, then... Um, you know, they they don't have enough space for them and there's catch and release even for them. But I think it's even worse than that. Remember, this is not just a loophole if you have a child. Right? This tells me that there's a lot of even single adults that are just saying, I have a credible fear. And we're letting them in too. Meaning this is not even just if you come with a child. We are, the administration is basically saying that the courts are the law rather than the laws being the law. And, and by doing that, they're creating this notion in the world that any human being, no matter how bogus it is, could just come and say, here I am. Now, if you don't have a child officially, you could be detained. But I think what's happening is over time, there's not enough detention space, so they're being let out. But again, if you did expedited deportation of these people, you wouldn't have to detain them. Again, the, there's nothing stopping DHS from immediately adjudicating them at, on the spot and saying and denying the credible fear. Instead, they're approving them. Deny it. Hold them in 10 cities. And within a few days, you can get them out. They can exhaust their appeals. And that's even assuming we're going to adjudicate. The president could shut down that process. The appeals, he could shut that down. And say, we are just not processing you. So you got to get out of our country. If you don't, we'll hold you in a tent city. You can involuntarily depart. We can allow you to depart whenever you want. But if for whatever reason you're you're caught on staying here and we either don't have the political will to push you back over the border and bring return you to Mexico or whatever, you're going to stay in the tent city. But the point is you cannot deny this. And then I've said before, if you look in statute, in addition to this, 1158B2C. The attorney general may, by regulation, establish additional limitations and conditions consistent with this section under which an alien shall be ineligible for asylum under paragraph one. That's it. That is it. How could you take one half a statute, have 10 courts take each element of it and abuse it? And contort it 
to a point that it's 180 degrees the opposite of its stated word and intent in a way that's going to override 50 other qualifications. They have eligibility in Mexico, so they're not eligible. None of them, prima facie, are, are real. Why do you think they're all coming now? Is not, nothing changed. There's been no coup. No, nothing economically has changed. It's always a bad place to live. If anything, violence is down. I, I just, I don't get it. I know I sound like a broken record on these issues, but it's worth repeating. But anyway, this is a big story that I think we're all missing. I'm going to link to this in show notes, but um, this is from uh, ABC News. The Mexican government, they're giving limited humanitarian visas to migrants. Okay. There's about 2,500 Central American and Caribbean migrants gathered in the southern state of Chiapas. That's near the border of Guatemala. National Migration Institute said Sunday it will give a priority to women, children, and those over the age of 65 whose situation merits such visas. Then it says the authority said it would also provide bus transportation back to Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras for citizens of those countries. This is Mexico's problem at this point. They are the first safe country. So what's the deal here? Why isn't this administration asserting anything? Well, for one, you have the Senate Republicans, rather than express outrage over what's going on at the border, this is from the Washington Examiner. Senate GOP leaders tell Trump they're worried about Stephen Miller's reported Homeland Security purge. Really? I hope that he's got more voices than that one in his ear on these issues because, yeah, I think it's important that he get a whole perspective and range of opinions. Senate Majority Whip John Thune, the second highest ranking Republican in the Senate said of Miller. Actually, I think the article got it wrong. Whoops, no, yeah, the, the article got it wrong. He's actually conference chair, so he's the third highest ranking. That, that would be John Cornyn. But the point is, um, really? He's already gotten that perspective. It's gotten the invasion. No one but Stephen Miller is going to give the American perspective. Everyone else is working for the cartels, illegal immigrants, smugglers, big business. Who is going to work for the American sovereign? I mean, that's the problem. Republicans fundamentally, three-quarters of them in the House and Senate, share the same views as the left on this issue. Man, I can't stand these guys. Man, are they annoying. Now, the one good counter to these bozo senators, so you have Senator Cotton and Purdue, Purdue from Georgia, now being joined by Josh Hawley from Missouri. They are reintroducing the RAISE Act as a message to the White House to force Trump to pick a side. 
As you know, Trump endorsed the RAISE Act a while ago. That is Trump's campaign promise. The RAISE Act reduces legal immigration numbers by 40% by getting rid of all the chain migration categories, getting rid of the diversity visa lottery. They might have tacked on E-Verify to it as well. Um, and it just reorients it towards it's just all a merit-based system, which is really what we all said we want. That if all the immigration you have is merit-based, um, that's all you need. That is all you need. You shouldn't need more legal immigration. That way we could you know, start working on maybe attempting to Americanize the ones that we already have, or some of them, if that's even possible anymore. So um, that's good news. And, and by the way, I'm going to try to have Josh Hawley on the show this week. There's a lot of potential there. He's got to be cultivated. There's a lot of good potential with him. He's solid on jailbreak. He's solid on the border. He's a law, a law and order type of guy. Um, really, really good prospects there. Really, really good prospects. So I think that is very good news there. And, you know, again, they're, they're, they're telling Trump, hey, you supported this last time. Now you have Jared trying to push for the exact opposite to downright increase the numbers. Well, we're reintroducing the bill. Which one is it, Mr. President? So, you know, just wanted to say while we're criticizing almost every other GOP senator, at least those three are trying to hold the line on at least this part of the issue. But again, frankly, I mean, if we don't hold the line... Um, you know, on illegal immigration, just that alone is going to kill us. We're not going to have a country left with, with these numbers. So this is really, truly out of control. Um, so something I just, just wanted you guys to be aware of. And, and again, I'm going to try to try to reach out to these guys, see if we can get them on the show. Um, a lot of people are often hesitant to come on this program, but you know, it is what it is. But that's where we are. Nobody in the White House or in the Senate, aside from Stephen Miller, is even pushing for a direction. And by the way, commensurate with the degree that the media attacks you, that is how honed in on the truth that individual really is. And that's why there's just this Orwellian magnitude of hate being directed at Stephen Miller. And one other point I wanted to bring out to you, this is a Politico headline. Kirsten Nielsen and her allies are working to rehabilitate her reputation, arguing, arguing that she's not the heartless villain depicted by liberal critics, already pressuring big companies not to hire her. See, that, that just goes to show that we were right all along about her. That's what bothered her the entire time. If you are going to serve in this administration, you cannot be bothered by that. Because that's what gets everyone every time. The reality is Kirsten Nielsen is a technocrat. But she will be hated just as much as Chris Kobach. So you may as well go for the glory. You may as well actually accomplish things and then have results to show people, look, I stopped illegal immigration. That's the problem with a lot of what this administration has been doing. They telegraph their punches, but then they don't punch. So you get all the liability, liabilities of it, but you don't get the benefits. You stoke up the other side, but you don't really jazz up your side. You don't really convert the people in the middle by showing uh, successful policy outcomes. So you get the worst of all worlds. There's no such thing as lukewarm hell. 
Once you've incurred all the liabilities, you got to go pedal to the metal and actualize the benefits of a policy. And again, that's why, you know, Border Patrol tomorrow needs to be ordered to tell anyone that if you have not applied in Mexico first, you're out of here. Again, that's even aside from our ability to shut it off irrespective of what Mexico offers or doesn't offer. So that's with that. I want to move on. But really, this is all the same theme of how bad do things need to get before we actually have a, a alternative vision to the swamp class. See, this is the issue. In Western civilization over the last two generations, the left has successfully taken over all of the institutions, cultural, media, money, politics, and certainly the legal system and the courts. So what, what it does is even people that start off conservative, they're, they're just too scared. And until there is counter pressure, until we create our own special interest class of people, meaning we're not the sexual alphabet soup. We're not any particular race or identity or ethnicity. We don't want some particular welfare. We just want to abide by our constitutional Republican documents of having a federal government in its proper role to protect us from external threats, state governments to take care of a few more things, and everything else is left to us, we the people. We don't want any subsidies from you, but we don't want you regulating and distorting our markets into oblivion. Until we create a faction for that, the predominant factions that might not necessarily speak to the hearts of 51% of the country. Maybe sometimes, unfortunately, they do. Certainly not in immigration, they don't. But they clearly garner 90% of the political class support. How do we break out of that? Now, I have long told you that it's my belief we will never, ever, ever prosper as a conservative movement until there's a new political party. It's that simple. Think about it. You have these senators that it's not like, okay, they're liberal on one issue. They're liberal on every single issue. You see sandbagging us at the worst time. Remember, I put out um, an article. I'm going to link to this in show notes. November 8th, 2018, the day after the midterm elections. The time to start on 2020 primaries is today. And I noted all these rhinos that are up. Mike Enzi in Wyoming. Shelley Moore. And by the way, these are all from Trump states. I just picked Trump states. So, you know, you should be able to win them in the general. Shelley Moore Capito in West Virginia. She's pro-abortion and pro-open borders from West Virginia. 31% Liberty score. John Cornyn from Texas. Lamar Alexander. Okay, so he's retiring now since I wrote that. I don't know if we have a good candidate yet. Mike Rounds from South Dakota. Lindsey Graham, the great new golden calf from South Carolina. Jim Inoff from Oklahoma. Tom Tillis from North Carolina. Bill Cassidy from Louisiana. Mitch McConnell from Kentucky. Dan Sullivan from Alaska and Pat Roberts from Kansas. He is retiring. Again, I don't know if we even have a movement to take advantage of that and to get Trump to endorse. 
Trump tomorrow could turn over these seats if he wanted to. But like I told you, no one's going to run in a primary until they get Trump's support. Because if you don't get his support, it's a double-edged sword. Then he's going to support the other guy. And then we're completely screwed. So now it's we've actually gone backwards in primary challenges. And that is why healthcare, every Republican now is adopting Obamacare, endless debt, and endless illegal immigration. Because what are you going to do, Daniel? The Democrats are even more extreme. That's the, that's the problem. You have this duopoly, and there's nowhere for us to go. But I can't even get my colleagues to recognize at least the problem, that at least we need to start a new party. But I wanted to glean this lesson from the Israeli elections last night. But I want to preface this by reading a little bit of Madison in Federalist 10. So in in that essay, Madison's explaining really the foundation of his Eureka moment at the beginning of the Constitutional Convention, what prompted him to craft this form of government. That, you know, he, he talked about obviously the danger of factions. Ideally, we have a a union of people. And, you know, you have the proper governance and you don't have factions. Nothing's about a faction, about a group of people, a group of economic interests or social interests, cultural interests. It's all, all governance is for the whole of the people through the confines of the document you accepted through the representation and system of checks and balances you put in place. But inevitably, human nature is as such, as he warned, that you're going to have this. And... His point was that once you have that, it's actually better to have a larger union than a smaller one. Or people were scared of this tyranny, this federal government, what's going on. Remember, originally they were just going to rewrite or fix the Articles of Confederation. This is a very radical thing when Madison came and said, no, let's scrap it and create a federal government. And they're like, what type of, that, that, that's tyrannical. He said, no, you don't understand. If you have a small group of people in a state, it's a lot easier for one faction to take over and you have the tyranny of the majority. But if you have it diluted among a much larger union with different states, it's going to be very hard for one faction to dominate everyone. That was essentially the thesis of what he said. It was very, very interesting. Very interesting. By a quote, by a faction, I understand the number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. That's how he explained the faction. So, Nowadays, you could easily understand that. We have all sorts of factions, whether it's the sexual alphabet soup, whether it's the ethnic front groups for illegal immigration. It's all to steal our sovereignty um, and either give money to other people, give our rights to other people, surrender our culture to other people, surrender our borders to other people. Literally, the stolen sovereignty dynamic I always talk about. And that was his complaint about factions. So... 
you know, he said, as long as the reason of man continues fallible and he is at liberty to exercise it, different opinions will be formed. As long as the connection subsists between his reason and his love, his opinions and his passions will have reciprocal influence on each other, and the former will be objects to which the latter will attach themselves. So he said, you're always going to have this. Now, back then, that meant really states, different states. Nowadays, we don't really have that for a variety of reasons. We have political parties. Unfortunately, factions have turned into political parties. But what we have is only two political parties, and it's really, in many ways, one. Or it's there's one head and one rear end. It's kind of one body. The Democrats are the head, and the Republican Party is the rear end and just follows it. Follows it slightly behind it, but <laughs> follow it, it, it certainly does. Inexorably so. And... He warned that, look, this is always going to continue. So, so the objective was how to best dilute that. And he came out with the thesis. And again, that thesis really buttressed his original Virginia plan in the formation of the Constitution that the only way to fight factions is you can't deny them or abolish them it's to fight factions with factions is to have more of them. The worst you could have is one or two of them. It's better if you have more of them and then you have, you know, it, it brings with itself its own problems. Certainly you know, you're always going to have ancillary benefits and detriments to different systems. But, um, you know, that, that, that's the issue. Quote, if a faction consists of less than a majority, relief is supplied by the Republican principle, which enables the majority to defeat its sinister views by reg regular vote. It may clog the administration, it may convulse the society, but will be unable to execute and mask its violence under the forms of the Constitution. When a majority is included in a faction, the form of popular government, on the other hand, enables it to sacrifice to its ruling passion or interest both the public good and the rights of other citizens. That was his concern. Right? That, that was the great vexing question they dealt with. Okay, we got rid of King George. What do we have now? What sort of republic with the right mechanisms do you create? If you just have a plain democracy, I mean, you know, it's a problem. A bunch of people get together and say, hey, you know, we want to um, make you pay for the rest of the world to come in. We want to make you pay for entitlement programs. We want to regulate what you do. Well, what are you going to do about that? That was the problem. And um, by the way, in the same essay, he actually defines a republic. A republic by which I mean a government in which the scheme of representation takes place opens a different prospect and promises the cure for which we are seeking. He said the two great points of difference between a democracy and a republic are first, the de delegation of the government in the latter, meaning a democracy, to a small number of citizens elected by the rest. Secondly, the greater number of citizens and a greater sphere of country over which the latter may be extended. So let's, let's unpack this. Let's unpack what he said. 
The effect of the first difference is, on the one hand, to refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interest of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations. Under such a regulation, it may well happen that the public voice pronounced by the representatives of the people will be more consonant to the public good than if pronounced by the people themselves convened for the purpose. On the other hand, the effect may be inverted. Men of factious tempers or local prejudices or of sinister designs may, by intrigue, by corruption, and by other means, first obtain the suffrages and then betray the interest of the people. The question resulting is whether small or extensive republics are more favorable to the election of proper guardians of the public wheel, and it is clearly decided in favor of the latter by two obvious considerations. In other words... He's saying there's two reasons why I'd rather a larger republic with more factions, meaning let's have, instead of being governed by a state, let's be governed by a federal union, then 13 states, now 50 states. In the first place, it is to be remarked that however however small the republic may be, the representatives must be raised to a certain number in order to guard against the cabals of a few. Okay, that, that that's a separate point. I want to get bogged down on that. In the next place... As each representative will be chosen by a greater number of citizens in the large than in the small republic, it will be more difficult for unworthy candidates to practice with success the vicious arts by which elections are too often carried and the suffrages of the people being more free will be more likely to center in men who possess the most attractive merit and the most diffusive and established characters." Now I want to get to the punchline here before we go on. The other point of difference is the greater number of citizens and extent of territory which may be brought within the compass of Republican than of Democratic government. And it is this circumstance principally which renders factious combinations less to be dreaded in the former than in the latter. The smaller the society, the fewer probably will be the distinct parties and interests composing it. The fewer the distinct parties and interests, the more frequently will a majority be found of the same party and the smaller the number of individuals composing a majority and the smaller the compass within which they are placed, the more easily will they concert and execute their plans of oppression. But then he goes on to say, extend the sphere and you take in a greater variety of parties and interests, you make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens, or if such a common motive exists, it will be more difficult for all who feel it to discover their own strength and to act in unison with each other. A lot more there to unpack. And I think, uh, you know, it's something you have to read very carefully. It's, It's very deep and, I apologize. I, I think maybe I could have given it over a little better, but I don't think Madison would have envisioned my application of this necessarily. But what I want to say is what I'm about to say, and I haven't said it yet, <laughs> I think takes the principles and applies it to a certain political reality in Western democracies nowadays. And that is because the political class is so homogenous. The elites are so homogenous 
in their deleterious and harmful ways and their ability to work in unison and communicate with each other and think alike. We need new factions introduced to dilute them. My biggest proof is Israel. Now, on the surface, you'd say, if you would take literally what Madison said, well, <clears throat> Israel's tiny. It's the size of New Jersey, and we're 50 states. So, you know, shouldn't they be worse off there? But again, the main point he was making isn't so much the size of the population, but the degree of factions. And at the end of the day, even though we are a much larger country, we have two political parties in this country, which is really one. And again, back then they envisioned more of the states as factions, but nowadays factions really are political parties. Unfortunately, but that's the reality. And we really have two parties that's like one. So there's nowhere for us to go. There's nowhere for we the people. You know, re really you shouldn't have any factions. It's the whole of the union. But unfortunately, again, the passions of men, like-minded, okay, I want this industrial interest. I want this social interest. I want this interest. So where is the interest for the forgotten American that doesn't want race hustling, doesn't want socialism, don't give me anything, don't take me anything, just give me security, give me a stable civil society, preserve our sovereignty from external threats, and leave me the blank alone. We need our own faction for that. And this gets to, to what happened in Israel. Israel has multiple parties. Multiple parties. And at the end of the day, to me, that is what has present, prevented Israel from going in the direction of other Western societies, among other reasons. There's other lessons. So as you all know, Bibi Netanyahu was re-elected um, re last night. His party... Um, got slightly, I think, maybe just by one seat more than uh, the competing party. But, you know, you have to form a coalition government because it's a parliamentarian system. So with that natural allied parties, he clearly won a majority. And he is now going to um, serve his fifth term. So in other words, he is going to be he's going on 10 years consecutively, 13 years total because he was prime minister for three years in the 90s. And they just elected him to another term despite being indicted, years of media depicting him as corrupt, and despite the fact that the left rebranded, literally almost abolished their Labor Party. Labor Party got 4% of the vote. It's unbelievable if you think about it. The party of Ben-Gurion, the party that founded Israel, the Labor Party almost is non-existent. They had this new party they called what? What is it? Blue and white. That was founded by this general. He the calls himself a centrist. He's a general. He's for security. You know, doesn't look like kind of like you know a entertainment figure or something. You know, like a leftist doesn't give off that image. So, you know, a lot of Israelis really had a, had a choice to say, look, you know, he's corrupt. There's fatigue. We're sick of him. It's remarkable to go that long this day and age with such technology and endless media saturation. If nothing else, you just get fatigue from the guy, which is why almost all the countries bounce back and forth between right and left. 
But it's unbelievable that he was reelected again. And in, in, in Israel, they're now talking about, could the left ever win again? Could they win? <clears throat> and part of the interesting thing, as I noted last week, is that in every other Western country, you have what well, you have in America where, like, for example, you have a labor party in Israel and not in Great Britain, but then you have the Tories, which really aren't that much different than, than the Labour Party. In Germany, people forget that Angela Merkel, massive open borders leftist, she's from the Christian Democrat Party, not the Social Democrat Party. But what Israel has succeeded more than any other country that has multiple parties is the ability to have factions, which is ironic because it's such a tiny country, but that's not the point. Even in a, even in a tiny country, I think certainly in a bigger country, <clears throat> you have factions that could easily, you know, you, you see within one election, they just could spawn a totally new party. And they, they, they come and go very quickly. Whereas in other parliamentarian systems, you do have third parties all over in Europe, but they're more long-enduring. It's harder to create them. It's hard to get rid of them. It's a lot more... Israel's system is very volatile. One of the things that happened last night was one of the parties, one of the major right parties, got cannibalized. And because Likud did so well, which is Netanyahu's party, the main kind of right-leaning party it took away from the smaller right-leaning parties, which some on the right might be upset. But in fact, what has happened is because of the existence of those parties, and because there's always a check and balance on Netanyahu from his right flank, that they can and will easily get on the map and challenge him and take away votes and either deny his majority or force him to go in a coalition government with them, it keeps them in check. It keeps them in check. And what it's done over the years is Likud, like the Tories, like the Republicans, like the uh, social uh, Christian Democrats in Germany, they moved to the left. They were starting to adopt a two-state solution. When Sharon flipped and became a leftist out of nowhere in the early 2000s, you know, they, they wound up supporting um, digging up their own people from, from Gaza. So what happened was over time, the right rebelled and it flushed out what we would call the rhinos, you know, like fake Republicans. So it was like fake Likud guys, right? And if you go down the roster of Likud, almost all these guys are to the right of Netanyahu. So in other words, traditionally, the type of people that would be in these small splinter parties are now actually the main slate of the Likud party now. So these smaller parties were a victim of their own success. They actually, it's mission accomplished to a certain extent where they've, they, they truly moved the Likud to the right, made them stay to the right, made them stay consistent, and that in itself destroyed the left because they stopped giving in to them, spoke the truth, were consistent, and worked. Now, again, there are other factors they have a reverse immigration situation where 
You have, you know, religious Zionist Jews moving from first world countries, Europe, North America, not coming for economics. They're coming for the ideal of the country itself. So it's literally the exact opposite of we're getting, you know, people don't come to be Americans. They come for, you know, welfare and everything. It's a unique circumstance. And that's why over time, you know, it, the electorate is leaning more right. But again, this is a long way of explaining our political science lesson today that our founders were scared of factions, but once you have them, the worst thing you could have is only a few of them and really a duopoly that's one because there's nowhere for us to go. Now, to be very clear, Israel's actual system of governance sucks. I'm talking about their political party system. I understand that a parliamentarian system lends itself more to that, but they're not mutually exclusive. You could reject their crazy parliamentarian system, which we certainly don't want. You want the separation of powers, among many other reasons. But we really do need a new party. Because the minute we would start drawing off enough people, even if we wouldn't be successful ourselves, I think that's the only way to at least, you know, it's kind of like your money or your life. You put a gun to the Republican Party's head, either we kill you, or we force you to do what we want. Right now, we have no leverage. And we never will have leverage. We never will have any leverage until we have a new party. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. So, um, you know, this is, uh, I don't know. It's something we really, really need headed forward. We got to think of how to do this. We got to think of how to make the forgotten American taxpayer who is not an A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, L, M, N, O, P faction, but it stands for the whole of the people. How to make him a protected class and have a faction representing us to dilute them. Because right now we don't have that. To me, that was the biggest takeaway from the elections. Obviously, everyone's taking away other things that, you know, when you have one guy that has, you know, major corruption allegations, but people view themselves as more prosperous and secure, and the other guy is a leftist, you know, that's the way to defeat them. So Trump might be able to defeat, you know, the left because they're so crazy on policy. So people might forgive him for some of the other stuff. And, and that's, there's validity to those arguments. I'm just saying to me, this is the biggest point I've taken out. But also it's like I told you, there is the immigration effect. Israel is not getting third world immigration coming for economic reasons. They're getting mainly people from, you know, Europe and, and North America, Jews that are coming for, you know, biblical Zionistic reasons. I mean, I've known people that um, I've heard of people the opposite. They believed in, um, you know, again, end of time believes beliefs. They believe in it so much that they take massive pay cuts to move there. So certainly if you have an electorate like that, they're not going to vote for the left to hand the country over to the Arabs. I mean, it's just they're not going to do that. 
Whereas here, we just bring in people who don't believe in America and they just come to milk us and suck us dry. So that's another important lesson to learn from the Israeli elections. By the way, my article just came out while we're on the air about this entire issue of endless sex offenders and criminal aliens being arrested. And I, I, um, I had correspondence with an ICE officer to write this article. And I will tell you a message I got. I'm just, I'm not doing this to ingratiate myself, myself. I'm just doing this to give you guys hope that, you know, we're making some progress. We're getting this out. Um, he, I, I sent him the article, I, you know, cause I want to just follow up. Hey, you know, I wasn't just wasting your time. I actually wrote an article based on the info, information you gave me. This is 123 criminal aliens arrested in New Jersey. And he said, Daniel, I, I will tell you exactly what I said to my boss here in Newark. In all my time here, this is the best article I've read about the challenges ICE ERO face, faces and overcomes on a daily basis. It is greatly appreciated considering how often ICE is made to feel like we must justify our existence. This one goes up on the wall, my friend. You're an excellent writer, and the world of journalism is lucky to have someone like you who values facts above rhetoric. Um, I Wow, that, that made my day. Literally, as I'm on the air here, this is what I'm I'm reading, and Good. Hopefully, I'll have another good contact to to get information from because um, a lot of these guys, you know, are deep state people that just don't share our values. So it's good to know um, someone appreciated this. So, yeah, I'm really really happy about that. But uh, I'm telling you, the truth bleeds out, but you need a faction some sort of party to promote this. I don't ideally believe in parties, but that that's the system we're in now. And we don't have a voice without one. As sure as I am of anything in politics, we will never get anywhere we want. In fact, we're going to continue to go backwards until we have a new party. I'm not going to stop focusing on other things you know, mutually exclusive to trying to get involved in primaries, do other things, move people to the right. But we can't lose sight of that cold stone fact. Anyway, we're just about out of time here. I got to run a couple more things I left on the docket. We'll have to leave for tomorrow. Send me your comments, concerns, and questions at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at armconservative. God bless y'all. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.